Is it Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But he's our special guest, Shakespeare Authority, James Shapiro. Well, it ain't no use to sit and wonder why, babe, if and you don't know by now. And it ain't no use to sit and wonder why, babe, it'll never do somehow. When you rooster crows at the break of dawn, look out your window and I'll be gone. You're the reason I'm traveling on. Don't think twice. It's all right. Thanks for that, Jim. So um, why did you choose that for your uh, opening? Really two reasons. One, for me, it's the Dylan song that's most personal. And probably as well, it's the one that speaks to how I understand creativity, uh, at least among the greatest artists. I think Dylan must have written this song when he was, you know, it's 1962. He must have been about 21, 22 years old. And at just that age, I was young and I was in love with somebody who I wanted to marry, a woman named Madeline, who who walked out of my life uh, when I was 21. And I was devastated. And I didn't have much outlet for that other than punching walls, I suppose. And I loved this song. And my dad had a, a great stereo system. And I would take my freewheeling album and drop the needle again and again and again on this, on this song, which must have run about three minutes or so. And I would just listen to it for hours. And in the years since, I've, we, I've stayed friends with Madeline 40, 43 years later. We, we still care for each other. I'm married to somebody else, have a grown child. But this song brings me back to that moment. And I just feel Dylan's songs are really complicated and emotionally difficult to enter into. This one is really easy for me to have a sense, or at least what I imagine, a sense of what he felt about when he was writing it. And in the, I think in the liner notes, the sleeve notes, he, he, he spoke to that a little bit when, when he said, people turn this into a love song. It's not a love song. It, it's something that you say to make yourself feel better mm-hmm. as if you're talking to yourself. And that's exactly how I, I related to the song. And, you know, 40 years have passed. I still listen to the song at least a half dozen times a week. And that, too, is important for me because its meaning has changed over time, which I can't say about a lot of songs or plays or or works of art, but it changes as I change. Tell us more about the changes. Well, I'm old. I'm no longer (laughs) a 21-year-old in love. I've had a a very fortunate life and uh, a great family and a great, great wife and kid. And something like that, that refrain, don't think twice, it's all right, can be read in, in so many ways. When I recited it for you, I, I did it in a kind of flat way, but it can be bitter. It can be recriminating. I'm sure when I was hearing it when I was 21, I heard it in, in, a, in a bitter and recriminating and desperate way. And now 40 years later, when I think back to having heard that song, then it, it really is, don't think twice, it's, it's all right. And um, in a more John Lennon-esque, if you will, all right, mm-hmm. 
it's fine. We've both lived our lives and we both did the right thing then. But it takes 40 years to reach that point. And when I think of Shakespeare, when I teach Shakespeare, when I work with actors on Shakespeare, there are certain lines in certain plays that have a similar quality. When Macbeth and Lady Macbeth are planning the murder of King Duncan and Macbeth says to his wife, if if we should fail, and Lady Macbeth responds with two words, we fail. But those words can mean we fail or we fail. And in, in, in much the same way, the simplicity and range of Dylan is in these lines and in this song, to me, really extraordinary. Do you think it's anything to do with the fact that both of those media are designed to be said out loud rather than poured over on the page? Absolutely. I mean, there, there are two kinds of Shakespeareans in the world, those who believe that Shakespeare wrote for the page and those who think he wrote for the stage. Mm. And we're talking to somebody who hated Shakespeare in school. I never studied him at university. I never studied him formally. My relationship to his plays consists entirely of of having held down some crummy job selling Mexican handicrafts or as a street messenger in New York as a teenager, quitting that summer job, August 1st, flying, thanks to Freddie Laker, from New York to London uh, for 99 bucks each way, sleeping in church basements or youth hostels, and seeing a play a day, every day, for a month. And I did that year after year after year, only Shakespeare. And after five or six years, I'd probably seen close to 200 plays. But it was all live. It was all taken in through the eye and the ear at a point in my life where I was really open to to art in a way that you know a more judgmental old guy uh, doesn't doesn't have access to anymore. So when I listen to Dylan or I I listen or watch Shakespeare, it's only as uh, as performance. It's not as it's not like I own an edition of Dylan's greatest lyrics. And if somebody gave it to me, I'd probably give it away. You said you only saw Shakespeare plays, but how did you stumble upon Shakespeare if you weren't really into him? What was the first Shakespeare play you saw? You know, my brother and I were bumming around Europe on interrail and Eurail passes, uh, country a day. We ended up in London. There are not a lot of things you can do back then, late 70s, mm-hmm. for less than a pound a day. And you could enter a theater for 50 pence and see a play. And it, for me, it was like a drug. And it was cheaper than other drugs available at the time, and uh, probably as habit-forming, I suppose, as any drug I've ever taken. Was it the uh, uh, RSC at the Old Witch? Yeah, exactly. It was the RSC at the Old Witch. I'd hitchhike up to the Edinburgh Festival. I'd stay in some nasty bed and breakfast in Stratford-upon-Avon, and I, I was just hooked. And for some reason, my brain was wired in a way that took these plays in. And all those plays that I saw then, hundreds of them, are tattooed inside my skull. And I have more recall of them than what I had for breakfast this morning. And so going back to Don't Think Twice, you were talking about, about more about the writing. Yeah, and it's something that I didn't know enough about until I was invited onto your program. But uh, one of the things that interests me about Shakespeare is the fact that, you know, he wrote 36 or so plays that we know of, and 
almost none of them, maybe The Tempest, maybe Midsummer Night's Dream, are his original story. But for the most part, Shakespeare was not interested in creating a new story. He looked around at the stories others had told, whether they were Italian novellas or English plays or histories, and he thought, I understand what's slightly off or not really fulfilled in this version, older version. And he did what you know architects call a gut renovation. <laughs> he kept the frame and he just cleared out the inside and made it his own. So when Dylan writes Don't Think Twice, he knows Paul Clayton's song, Who's Gonna Buy You Ribbons When I'm Gone. He worked with Clayton, who, who sadly killed himself in, in 1967. They toured together, collaborated a little bit. And I'm sure that there's kind of cross-pollination, if you will, between Clayton's song and, and, and Don't Think Twice. And Dylan was a little tetchy from what I've learned about that. You know, he said, did I steal the word a or the word so or the word done? You know, and it's, it is a good question, although he was a little defensive. He didn't steal those words, but he is reaching into a tradition and a tradition that goes further back than Clayton to what I learned was an African-American song that circulated in Virginia Who's going to bring you chicken? So what we're talking about are traditions, and Shakespeare comes out of traditions really in very similar ways to how Dylan does. And plagiarism is a useless category. The only useful category is can you take something old and make it speak to the moment in a way that makes people feel connected to that song in ways nobody has ever felt connected to it? And Dylan did that for me. I think I'm right in saying, and, and correct me if I'm not, that Sean Willents, I think, wrote a book called Bob Dylan and America. And he, I believe, explored this notion and said, you know what? It's alchemy. What he's doing is he's taking base matters and he's creating something new out of it that shines. And I thought that was a really interesting I think image. It is. And Sean Willents is uh, a friend and a, and a very smart guy. And I think he wrote brilliantly about, about Dylan. Christopher Ricks did as well. Mm. Uh, they're just uh, people who recognize that his work rises to the level of seriousness. And it, it is alchemical. It is a transformation. But for me, it's really – there's a lot of thoughtfulness beyond the magic of the transformation. And the thoughtfulness, I suppose, has to do with I, I see what's not there. And that's a hard thing to – to grasp. And Shakespeare was really good at it. He, he didn't create the story of Hamlet. He didn't create the story of King Lear. Those were old plays bouncing around on the stage. He probably acted in as a, a spear holder when he was young. And he's on stage thinking, God, I can write this great soliloquy at this point, or I could tweak it in this way. And maybe it's not occurring to Bob Dylan in a cerebral way, but it's occurring to him in, in a way that lets him know yeah, I, I, I know the folk he's saying this, but that song is dead on arrival. Something has to be done to reanimate it. Hmm. And I suppose it's as much um, raising the dead as alchemy. And where do you think Dylan and Shakespeare intersect particularly? I think, oddly, even though 400 years or so separates their births, 
they're both products of a similar education system. You know, it's it's remarkable if you listen to to Dylan's account of uh, his education in his Nobel lecture in, mm. in 2017. He talks a lot about grammar school. You know, he learned things in grammar school. The the devices, techniques, secret mysteries, whatever he's talking about. He, he talks about Gulliver's Travel, Dickens, Don Quixote, all these stories. And, of course, we know he had a great teacher in school who taught him the poetry of John Donne and the poetry and plays of Shakespeare. So Shakespeare learned what he learned in grammar school. I mean, this is a Western tradition that spanned then and now. And both of them sat there probably frustrated, probably their minds racing as they were exposed to this stuff and taking it all in. And a decade later or eight or ten years later, figuring out how to turn this into into gold, if you will. And I mean that both literally and figuratively because you have to make money as an artist or like Paul Clayton, you're going to end up desperate and, and suicidal. Mm. And both of them figured out how to do that. And if you think, you know, as a thought experiment, had Dylan or Shakespeare been born 20 years earlier or 20 years later, mm. Whatever genius they had could not have been fully realized. So, yes, they were both remarkable artists, but they had great luck in being born at what they recognized. Both of them were pivotal moments in in their culture, in the arts, in the possibilities that were now available to young artists. Yeah, it's it's funny talking about the grammar school because today I started rereading um, a book called The Dylanologists, which is a great book about people who are a bit crazy about Dylan. And uh, in the first chapter, the uh, the writer goes back to Hibbing, and uh, he goes to this uh, the restaurant Zimmy's, which is a, th- a Bob Dylan theme mm-hmm. restaurant, and they've got a picture of Bob Dylan in his like his grade three grammar school class, <laughs> and everybody is looking at the camera. You know, all 30 kids are looking at the camera, except for Dylan, who at the moment they snap the picture, turns away. I that's thought, perfect. That's the kid, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the child is father to the man. Yeah. Can you imagine trying to corral little Bobby Zimmerman, you know, uh, or little Will Shakespeare? I'm sure Shakespeare took a beating or two when he turned away in his grammar school. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, Exactly. I mean, we know absolutely nothing really about Shakespeare's youth, or do we? I mean, we know what was mandated as reading in school. So the same way Dylan can give us his list of grammar school readings, we know that Shakespeare read Plautus and Terence, these great Roman comedians, uh, writers of comedy. And we know as he's sitting there ignoring his schoolmaster, he's figuring out, okay, I see the chess moves here. I can do this, 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 and this. I can make this work. And uh, I'm sure the same kind of process is is going on in 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 Dylan's fertile mind as as a young man. And they're both they're both really able to take advantage of technological change like when shakespeare is born there's no permanent theater in england just doesn't exist and by the time he's in his late 20s and living in london boom he's there at the beginning 
in the same way that, yeah, there are folk singers forever. But once you go electric, once you start having Woodstock large scale festivals, you're reaching a much larger audience and the, the possibilities what you can create also grow. So in that way, too, I think of them as uh, uh, quite similar. Yeah, I was thinking about what you were saying about how they both lived in different realities or, or were interested in the nature of uh, reality. And uh, when I was thinking about us talking to you, I was thinking about the, um, the Robert Icke, Andrew Scott Hamlet, which I'm assuming you've mm-hmm. seen, and which is soundtracked by Dylan. And it seems to mm-hmm. me that, that that's something uh, that they threw Dylan into to sort of splinter the reality even even more, and in a, in a musical way. I mean, what did, what did you make of that? Um, what it made me think of was, and brought me back to, was we, we think of Shakespeare as a word guy. And that's true if you study him for your A-levels, he's a word guy. But if you're going to the theater in 1599 or in 1611 and going to see Shakespeare, you knew that he was collaborating with the greatest musicians of his day. So in a play like As You Like It, he walks around the corner, finds a guy named Thomas Morley, who's a great songwriter, and they both use the song A Lover and His Last, which is kind of dumped into the play and which Morley publishes separately a year or two later. They they kind of work out an agreement, a kind of copyright agreement, we would say today, where they could both use it. Or a decade later, uh, uh, when Shakespeare's writing his late plays and doing that half the year in the winter in the indoor Blackfriars Theater, he connects with Robert Johnson, uh, I guess the namesake of the great blues singer some <laughs> centuries later, uh, who I love. But Robert Johnson is the great lutenist of his day. He's a great musician. And song after song, you know, they may not be uh, as appealing as a Dylan song, but Where the Bee Sucks uh, in the Tempest at the time was a terrific song. So Shakespeare understood that music adds dimensions to theater and to his drama. And in a way, a lot of his works are kind of proto-musical and uh, in the sense of musical drama that we now think of, there's Shakespeare musical like uh, West Side Story or uh, something like that. But he also understood that music is magic and that when he was trying to achieve magical effects in his plays, music was the way, one of the great ways of doing that. I always think of that scene in Twelfth Night when Orsino summons Feste and says, you know, sing me a song. And he does. And it utterly changes every single person in the room. And the scene after that song is completely different from the scene beforehand. There's this kind of, you know, this tragic sort of pallor that's sort of hanging over the stage. It's remarkable. And it's utterly down to the transformative power of song. And that's the right word. It's really the transformative power. And that, I think, you put it better than I did. Shakespeare recognizes in, in certain moments that you need music. So that in a late play like The Winter's Tale, when the statue of Hermione miraculously comes to life, somebody dead reborn, there's still this music that the stage direction orders to be played at that moment. Because you can't get there without the uplift, without the transformation that, that music gives everyone. 
I remember I, I, uh, I've checked out some of your uh, interviews on YouTube, and at one point you uh, we you were talking about uh, Shakespeare and saying that he'd be a terrible talk show guest, that he'd steal other people's books from the green room, and <laughs> and wouldn't really you know open up, uh, which sounds very much like well that's literally what Bob did. Um, stole uh, everybody's records from uh, you know the, when he when he went to to sleep over. What other similarities do you think they habits they might have? They had? both immediately deny that they were stealing anything. They were just so, <laughs> they're just killing time in the green room. I, I think they can't help it. They're like professional creative thieves, and it's second nature for them to let stuff flow in, but. They had a mechanism to keep the bad stuff out and let the good stuff in. And, you know, when we talk about genius, uh, we tend to focus on great lyrics, great sounds. But there are other things involved as well. One is you got to make enough money to keep doing this. You have to achieve financial independence to create the art you want to achieve. And both were geniuses at that. And you can't repeat yourself. There are a lot of artists who just do the same thing again and again and again. And, you know, I'm sure when Measure for Measure debuted in in 1603 and people in the audience at the Globe wanted to hear the same old romantic comedy and was were getting this dark stuff. Somebody shouted from the audience, Judas, you you know that had to have happened. (laughs) Problem play, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. It's going electric. (laughs) That's that's not an ending. Yeah. There's... Once you start looking in Dylan and Shakespeare for similarities, it kind of makes your head swim. I mean, obviously preparing for this, I did a bit more than than usual. In Macbeth, for example, I found Meet Me in the Morning. There's also a a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing, literally an idiot wind. There's uh, Country Pie, which is basically the same joke as Country Matters in Hamlet. Um, Even a song as... You'd think as un-Shakespearean as, as to be alone with you. There's the couplet, I wish the night were here, bringing me all of your charms. And I thought, they sound Shakespearean. I'll, I'll, I'll dig a little deeper. And yeah, it's not quite literal, but I wish the night were here is, is very similar to I would the night would come from Hamlet. And bringing me all of your yes. charms is very similar to your charms and everything provide in Macbeth. And that's before we even get to King Lear, which you're a, a real authority on that. Your, your book, uh, 1606, William Shakespeare and the Year of Lear. Is a, is a great read, as is 1599. And there's an apocryphal tale that Dylan had a, a copy of King Lear open at his house in 1967. Uh, and that's, of course, when we get um, this wheels on fire, too much of nothing, nothing was delivered, tears of rage. And I think probably spills over into John Wesley Harding as well. Have you ever examined those songs and, and, and mined them? You know, I'm running through my memory as you're speaking uh, about these songs, and it feels exactly right. It feels like that copy of Lear's Open or the soundtrack of that play is running through his head as he's writing these songs. And I have no doubt that you, you're you exactly right. As you're saying this, I'm flipping it around and thinking of were I to do a production tomorrow or whenever this world allows us to do productions again, yeah. I would choose as the fool in Lear 
uh, a Dylan lookalike with uh, a guitar strapped around his neck and a harmonica because those sardonic songs of the fool, which are impossible to parse and understand as you read them on the page, but carry such a punch in the theater are are Dylan-esque. Mm. And I, I think that would really work well. Yeah, I think it sounds right. like such a good idea. I'm amazed that it hasn't been done yet. I know. Because he's mercurial and he's cocky and he's kind of anachronistic in those scenes and everything, everything that Dylan always is, isn't he? I'm wondering if... And he disappears. Yeah, he disappears. Well, those are the years. Those are the uh, Woodstock years. Where he's yeah, there. right. Have <laughs> um, <laughs> him come in on a motorcycle. That's, that's, that's what to do. Yeah. <laughs> Wearing a Triumph t-shirt. Okay. Okay, we'll do it as yeah. soon as they open the theaters again. Yeah. And just to go really, really nerdy, Jim, because this is a personal thing of mine I've, I've wanted to talk to you about for four years. Ever since I read 1599 and you alerted me to this literary concept of hendiadis, am I saying that right? Yes, you are. Oh, the, the notion of, of two words being thrown together and then the producing this this kind of vertigo effect as they're as they're said together and, and there's many many examples in hamlet that you write about in your book 1599 uh angels and ministers of grace defend us uh, we had one from macbeth that it's full of sound and fury signifying nothing and I, I noticed in in house carpenter that old folk song there's there's house and home in there as well and I, I, yeah, I, don't, I don't know how much further that idea goes, but I just I love the idea of Hendiades. I think it's fascinating. I mean, what's, what's great about Hendiades is when you first hear a phrase like sound and fury signifying nothing, it, it makes perfect sense. But when you bear down on it a little bit or a lot, all of a sudden it becomes unstable, free-floating. And it's hard to know what's modifying what in that sentence. And I, I don't want to make it sound too literary or complicated, but it's a great effect that Shakespeare uses in Hamlet and Macbeth. Not very often before that or after that. There's some of it in the King James Bible. I am sure if somebody turned to Dylan and worked through his lyrics, we'd find a whole bunch of these because it's that free-floating Mm. A collision of words that makes you feel you get them on a surface level. And then you go deeper and you go a little mad, as I'm sure mm. many of your serious listeners do, <laughs> trying to really understand what does he mean here? And I suppose Dylan might respond, I don't mean anything here. These are just the words that I'm putting out there or the lyrics. But I think something like Hendites is Dylan-esque in the sense of it's both immediate appeal and deeper instability. I'm not sure. I don't think love and theft isn't a hendiadis, as I understand it. But when that came out, I thought, love and theft, what the hell? You know, and I still yeah. think it's, it's a great title because it's a typical sort of Dylan, um, you know, throwing two things against the wall and, and watching them blend. Or or not at or the not. same time. Yeah, yeah. Well, if trying to figure out the, the thing is, most of us who aren't, you know, Dylan or Shakespeare, try to make things blend. At least I do. Try to make things make sense. And but on the other hand, I think we enjoy having our imagination stimulated by things that patently don't make sense. And that's why I enjoy both Dylan and Shakespeare because I don't really I understand them properly. I think we want to think that we understand them. I think when I first heard Don't Think Twice, I needed to believe that I understood what those words mean. 
And as you get older and as you get a little less confident of your judgment, you begin to realize, well, that grasp that I had, it's not as firm, but that's good too. And things in life are slippery and elusive. And the reason why 400 years later we're still listening to Shakespeare rather than Thomas Kidd or, or Ben Jonson is because their meanings were more fixed. And Shakespeare's were slippery and elusive to the point of evasive. And uh, my money is on Dylan, Leonard Cohen, and not too many others 400 years from now having that staying power for that reason. Hmm. And Dylan more than anyone. It was interesting in, in his Nobel speech, which you mentioned uh, earlier, that it was basically about Shakespeare, the, the Nobel acceptance speech. And I don't know if he's – and his not so much – well, possibly his death to Shakespeare and also just talking about Shakespeare as a working artist, which was, which was great because it really made him Shakespeare our contemporary because Bob Dylan is actually name-checking him. But has he name-checked uh, – do you know um, – Luke, I'm throwing this open. Has he name-checked Shakespeare before or since – well, we've only had Shakespeare. He's in the alley with his pointed shoes. Oh, yeah. Belt. We've we've had Ophelia. She's neath the window. Uh, no, but I mean, in in when he's given any of these usually catastrophic I, speeches, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think probably what happened there is he was anticipating the reaction of people saying this isn't literature, just so he could say, "Well, you call Shakespeare literature," and that was performance art too. And I, I, you know, it, it it does a lot of things in 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 if you will a characteristic Dylan way. He's saying, um, I don't know if you'd give a Nobel Award to Shakespeare, but if you're given one to me, you might as well have given one to somebody like him. He, he's asking for me exactly the right questions, like uh, in his acceptance speech, um, where am I going to find a human skull? Is the financing in place? You know, is this <laughs> literature? And he's just exactly right that Shakespeare wasn't sitting down when he finishes Hamlet and saying, God, I, I'm, I'm a genius. This is going to be taught in <laughs> kids are going to be testing on this for hundreds of years. Instead, he's thinking, is Burbage up for this? Can he memorize 2000 lines? I mean, there are technical issues always. And I mean, if we start this at two o'clock, is the sun going to go down before that fencing scene at the end? Mm -hmm. And I, I think Dylan understood and understands that part of Shakespeare and that part of genius better than the rest of us, because for all the talk of genius, it, it, it's useless unless you can make it work financially, make it work in terms of technology, and continually reinvent yourself to stay young. And and there's one thing we haven't really talked about, and this is something that's only come out in Shakespeare's studies in the last, let's say, 15, 20 years. Shakespeare rejuvenated himself. He constantly collaborated with younger people and with others when he felt his powers lagging. And when I think of Dylan doing so much collaborative work with other artists, it's coming out of that same tradition where you don't think of yourself as above everybody else. You think, I have to connect. And the only way I'm going to connect is by working with artists who are connecting right now with people out there. And I'm going to need to do that and I'm going to do it. And yeah. that's perfectly compatible with the idea that they've, they've got to keep moving. They never stop for one second. They never rest on their laurels, do they? 
Yeah, yeah, and they don't believe in laurels uh, mm. at a fundamental. <laughs> yeah, uh, as and you know that separates them from the rest of us. Do you um, going back to the music and uh, and combining music and theater? Did you see Girl from the North Country? I loved it. I saw it at the Public Theater in New York about I don't know eight months ago, mm-hmm. and I uh, didn't have the best seats, but uh, managed to shoehorn my way into the theater. And thought it was beautiful. I, I think it could have been, I like my theater and I like my music edgier. I think that they were trying to be inclusive in a way that, that left me out. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I think the more people who are exposed to, to Dylan, the better. But again, there's the public Dylan and there's the private Dylan. And the private Dylan is the one we all have on our our musical devices that we play walking down the street or sitting right now in, uh, stuck in our uh, apartments or homes around the world. And at a time like this, I find great comfort in knowing that I have on my left hand uh, the complete works of Shakespeare and on my right pretty much the complete works of Dylan. And if anything is going to get me through the next 18 months, it's it's the two of them. Yeah. And I, I mean, you're in New York um, because of the, the pandemic that's gripping the world. Uh, Broadway was shut for a month, I think. So Girl from the North Country, is that theatre is dark at the moment. I don't know what Dylan's yes. touring schedule looks like. I, I read an interview with David Crosby the other day that said if he doesn't tour for the rest of this year, he will have to sell his house. And I thought, good God, someone of that stature is is literally so close to the breadline in terms of performance that if you remove that that leg of the table, it all falls apart. I don't know what Dylan... I can't imagine, you know, that Dylan has contemplated a world without touring. I mean, obviously he yeah. has now, but before that, I mean, because that's his life. Hmm. I mean, what else does he do? Uh, except... It's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's mind-boggling, and it makes me think of moments in Shakespeare's life where because of plague and epidemics of that were wiped out a seventh of London in 1592 and 1603 and closed the theaters. Mm. Um, it was devastating to that creative world. And sometimes those theaters were closed for a year or 14 months. And in a way, it was terrible for Shakespeare and his audiences. And in a way, uh, in sad ways, it was advantageous because it just eliminated the competition. Those who were not uh, well-funded, didn't have deep pockets to ride it out, went under, and Shakespeare's company was able to thrive and, and in the ensuing years. So I think we're going to see real shakedowns in every creative mm. line, in, in dance, in, in music, in, in, and in theater. Sadly, a lot of great, great artists are, are going to suffer. Mm. Whoa. Speaking of great artists, um, you did when you emailed uh, earlier uh, today, you said you, you were going to choose Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. But you also said, I think that, if I understood you correctly, that there's never been a decent cover version. Is that your belief? You know, that's I think of that in terms of Shakespeare. Nobody's ever been able to, if you will, cover a Shakespeare play. There are probably 50 versions of Hamlet out there. None of them are half as good as the original. And if you think about who tried to cover uh, this song, I mean, Ralph McTell, 
Elvis Presley, Joan Baez, <laughs> Willie Nelson. I mean, Dolly Parton, Arlo Guthrie, just trying to wrap your head around it. Johnny Cash and Eric Clapton, who I, I, I love as much as, if not more in certain ways, uh, than Dylan, as heretical as that sounds on this program. And, and Clapton's cover of this is awful. And there are awful many awful covers. Actually, I was listening to what sounds no like a similar playlist. I was listening, you know, this is, I'm just joking, but I did, was listening to Flatten Scruggs this morning. Uh, uh-huh. their version. The reason I liked it is because it, the language in it, is very, uh, very Woody Guthrie, very hillbilly. You know, there ain't no use and blah, blah, blah. It, it's, it's, uh, the lot I never knowed. It's, it sounded actually like they should be from West Virginia. Like th- that actually mm-hmm. sounded, you know, it, it, they got, actually they got some of the words wrong, but, uh, musically it, you know, it was very, very basic down home stuff. And I enjoyed that. I enjoyed it as a completely different take. You know, there wasn't the emotional content of the original. When I was listening to that, we've got a, uh, we were given, um, a playlist. What was it? At least there's at least a hundred covers on it. Yeah, and when I was listening to it the first time, I listened to it all the way through. The best ones were Dylan, the 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 Whitmark demo, and the the one that was uh, released originally. I have to say, they were the best. Yeah, I'm I'm a massive Elvis fan, but I'm not going to try and defend his version of "Don't Think Twice." It's all right for one second. I think was it a sound check because it sounds like he was Um, just messing around. He sounds like he's messing around for for many years at that point in his life. I do like Johnny Cash's version, and I love the way that. Understand Your Man is basically the same song, and I particularly enjoyed that moment on the bootleg series on Travelling Through when they they decide to sing each other's lines over the same melody, and then Johnny Cash laughs and says, well, it's because we both both stole it from the same song. And in exactly Mm -hmm. the way that you said, Dylan is tight-lipped. He will not discuss the fact that he's nicked that. You know, I think one way of reading this and taking this is Shakespeare and Dylan were great cover artists, in their way. Mm. Uh, and they changed a lot of what they had. When I listen to Johnny Cash do this, I, I love his gravelly voice, but they only get Don't Think Twice in parts. They don't get the, the shape of it right. It's a very simple song, but it's almost impossible to replicate both the mood shifts and the, if you will, instability, the slipperiness of, of what its message is. And covering just gives you the sense of the gap between really great artists and those who are greater than that. Good point. I mean, because you know that Dylan is, he's, he's lived it and he's living it as he sings it. And that comes out at you. You, you understand in your bones that he, that it's him. The song is him. And, uh, and there's something about the precision of the melody as well, because you're, you're right. It's, it's kind of, there's an instability in there, but the melody is so adept and the guitar playing is so proficient. Um, and it all sort of, it all seems to create the, the, a similar effect, but it shouldn't, because like with Hendaitis, it's, it's, it's tugging in two different directions. And it's also, as you say this, it's tapping into something more primal. You know, the, the granddaddy of, of Don't Think Twice was a slave narrative in the South uh, and in its way. I mean, there are many tributaries that flow into this, and I'm not trying to reduce it in any way. But it's hard to create sadness and steeliness at the same time. And that is in the song as well. But you have to tap into something that's been there for a while. 
and it has to have, uh, I, I suppose, kind of earned its blues-type quality. And and that, I think, is part of Dylan's understanding, too. And to just get all these components together in what sounds like a really simple song sung by a young guy, it, it, it's mind-boggling. Are there any songs you think can stand up to it in his canon? Any any other, or just any other favorites you have? I mean, Visions of Johanna, I listen to every day. Uh, I love it. It doesn't grow on me, it just frustrates me i suppose <laughs> um I, I i like to listen to songs for different reasons and some songs i, ju- I just don't get and i think that if you kind of look at your dylan playlist and keep track of why you're listening and force yourself to write down why am i playing this for christ's sake each day or why am i skipping over this one mm. Uh, you, you, you do the equivalent of 20 years of psychotherapy. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny, but you know, the, there's like all along the watchtower is a, is a mysterious song, but for some reason it seems really accessible to me. Like you just put on, admittedly yeah. the Hendrix version is even more accessible, but the Dylan version is fabulous. And I, 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 it, I don't find it frustrating in the same way I do find visions of Johanna frustrating, but I also listen to it in that same way that you try to make sense of things, which you never will. Well, you keep trying. I mean, there's going to be a day, and you can bring me back on at the age of 95 to say, <laughs> I finally wrapped my head around visions of Johanna. Uh, uh, but maybe not. Are there, are there similar Shakespearean passages that you find sort of impenetrable, but, but you keep going back to? Yeah, uh, that's... One of the advantages of um, teaching these plays, I've been teaching at Columbia University to, to smart 20-year-olds for 35 years now, and I always reread the play before I teach it, simply because I'm changing, the world's changing, they're changing. For all I know, the play has, has secretly moved in ways that I don't understand. Hmm. And there are plays that just pop. They, they, they just pop in, in, in ways that... Uh, shock me. And there are plays that kind of die out and, and lose their their force. Romeo and Juliet doesn't work for me as it did, let's say, 40 years ago in my life. Uh, plays like The Winter's Tale just rise in my estimation in certain scenes and certain moments and certain encounters, even single lines just reveal themselves. Um, and And that's the only reason to keep teaching this stuff, or for that matter, play a song twice i think the one that you alerted me to was julius caesar i I read 1599 i think in the summer of brexit and i was reading about these um (laughs) these thugs really who were inducing panic on the streets of a country to take power and then it transpired that they didn't have a plan after all and i thought oh yeah that's that's interesting (laughs) Um, and then, but also the the thing about Julius Caesar, which everyone always says, is the second half is a bit of an anticlimax. And I think you were the first person to put into words that this is on purpose. This is this is to simulate the sensation of gaining power and then not knowing what you do next. Which is, I mean, that's kind of Dylan-esque too. That that deliberate generic confusion that he does. You put it better. I'm sorry, I couldn't steal that. Maybe in my next edition, I'll, I'll steal that line and, you are more than and straighten out my awkward way of, of putting it. Uh, I think Julius Caesar is really one of those plays, Anthony Cleopatra too, that 
has surprisingly changed on me and becomes unfamiliar and then familiar in, in different ways simply because of the pressure we're under. And I know I'm just going to go back and read through Shakespeare's plays now that I'm trapped at home <laughs> and uh, no longer preparing for this conversation and uh, try to see how they've changed in light of coronavirus, in light of how people are behaving nobly and badly uh, and will for the next year or so. And Shakespeare is is a, a guide for me to to register those things. It's interesting to me, as we're winding down, to uh, reflect on the fact that both Shakespeare and uh, Dylan kept their politics quite close to their chests. Like, even though Dylan was a supposed protest singer, he always denied it. And, uh, and Shakespeare really was very fluid and played, he played the politics very well, but what do you what do you make of, bo- of both of their uh, take on politics? Well, I'm going to steal that. I mean, I remember hearing Joan Baez sing and just feeling her politics in in every gesture and and choice of song. When I was young, I um, I was friends with a lot of hippies, and everybody had a Martin guitar or a Gibson, and we would go to Gertie's Folk City uh, in the village when I was 14 or 15. And it was a political, folky moment. But I don't know what Shakespeare's politics are, and I don't know what Dylan's politics are. And I think they both understood early on that if they hitched their wagon to a particular movement, when that movement died, that wagon would stop rolling. And uh, they appealed to a broader audience simply because we get to fight over them, say that they speak to our vision of the world. And that, too, is something that great art does. If it's limited in its meaning, if it's limited in its appeal, it it's diminished in certain ways. And um, I think that Dylan may be unique as a modern artist in any form right now for having figured that stuff out at a very early age. Is It Rolling Bob? Talking Dylan is recorded in the Calvin, Blake, and Wilson suite at Lipsing Studios. Engineered by Mark Langley-Smith and produced by Robin Guise. Music is by Sam Hare. We're part of Pantheon Podcasts, the music podcast network. Find us on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. Othello told Desdemona, I'm cold, cover me with a blanket. By the way, what happened to that poisoned wine? She said, I gave it to you. You drank it.